Well, good morning, church. I invite you, if you haven't already had a chance to switch on your device or open your Bibles, to, to do so now and find Matthew chapter 18 that we just read together. We started last week this teaching series on the parables of Jesus, this rich treasure trove of stories and illustrations that that form the kind of vibrant, beating heart of his teaching. The word parable itself is an interesting one, and not that hard to understand. Two words sort of meshed together. Bole, which is exactly what you think it is, to throw, and para, alongside. A paralegal works alongside a legal. A paramedic works alongside a a medic. So the parables are teachings that Jesus throws out there alongside the core of his message. And they're always meant to do two things. The first thing they do is they illustrate something about the reality of life in the kingdom of God. What would it look like on earth if people lived according to the design and pattern and fabric of the world as God intends it to be? When Jesus prays, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what does that mean? What does it look like? to live life like it's in the kingdom. So many of the parables actually begin with the words, the kingdom of God is like this. They're always descriptions of what life is like under the rule of God. The other thing to bear in mind about uh, the parables is that they always have a punch to them. There's always something striking, challenging, memorable, Uh, These are interpretive challenges. I mean, these aren't always easily understood. In fact, those who are closest to Jesus, his own disciples, are constantly getting pulled aside after Jesus has told one of the parables. They have a little little, uh, cluster, and they say, did you understand? They say, no, I got no idea, Lord. And then he goes on to explain the meaning of the parables. There is truth in them, but it doesn't mean the truth is always easily understood. The truth is meant to be received, it's meant to be applied, it's often something that has a a sharp edge to it, but it's meant to be received. And so we've been doing that week by week, and we'll continue to do that, take one of these parables of Jesus and try and unpack it and apply it in our lives. And because there are challenges there, uh, before we begin, we're just going to invite God to help us through the challenges. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we ask now that your word would come to life for us, that it would leap off the page and where there are obstacles or barriers that might prevent us from fully understanding what it means, that, that you would remove those things. But God, more than just understanding the truth of your word, we want to be able to apply it in our lives so that it can make a tangible difference. Give us the courage not just to hear, but to listen, not just to listen, but to obey. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll tell you the story of a man. His name is Jeff Nordic. Completed his MBA and got the job of his dreams working for Goldman Sachs. Within a few months, he received his first promotion. He was working as a department manager. And within his first two years, he had risen to the place of the chief investment officer in the bank. And while he was leading at Goldman Sachs, the market itself was on this incredible escalating cycle. It seemed like he could do nothing wrong. Everything that he invested in succeeded. And he went out and he bought the BMW of his dreams. 
and he and his wife found their dream home on the lake shore in Oakville. And just so that the wealth and prosperity could be shared among his friends and family, they even bought a log cabin up in Muskoka where they could gather on the weekends. Wanting to cash in on this escalating trend of, uh, of tech stocks that seemed to do no wrong, he leveraged his position at the bank in order to to borrow a lot of money and invest in what he thought was absolutely a sure thing, a startup that was in the hands of three of his close friends in university, technological geniuses. I mean, under their leadership, this could do no wrong. They could make not just millions, but possibly billions with their ingenuity and their creativity and their design. And everything was going fantastically well. Until that day, that a Wall Street firm sent out notice to investors all across the continent, advising them to sell their tech stocks. And then within weeks, the Nasdaq dropped to half of its value, and Jeff's investment, which had soared to $75 a share, was wiped out, reduced to penny stocks. And it would be bad enough if he'd just been investing his own money. He would have lost the investment. But the problem is he'd invested borrowed money. And then it wasn't long before the bank president had him in his office on the 57th floor of one of those Bay Street towers and asked him what he knew would be impossible. Jeff, you need to repay the loan. And he knew the math wouldn't work. Even if he sold his Lakeshore home and his BMW and the log cabin in Muskoka, it was a fraction of what he owed. As he sat across the table from the bank president, he could feel the sweat starting to beat up on the back of his neck. And he was thinking about George Bernard Shaw's old line, forgiveness is a beggar's refuge. We must repay our debts. Now, throughout the industry, Jeff was known as a brilliant negotiator. He could persuade just about anyone of anything. And so he thought before he gave up entirely, he would give it one last shot. And unable to admit defeat, he asked the bank president, said, Mr. Surrey, if you just give me a little bit of time and leniency, 18 months is what I'm asking, and I'll repay every penny of what I owe. Then he watched the president for any sign that he'd been as persuasive as he'd always been able to be. The president looked across the desk, that 57-story window in the background, and, and then slowly said to him, Jeff, I know what's happened in the industry. I know what's happened to the tech stocks. I know the financial hit that you've suffered. Because of the great work that you've done for the bank, I'm going to exercise the discretionary powers that the board has given me, and I'm going to write off this loan. And he couldn't believe his ears. $10 million forgiven. I mean, his darling BMW was still going to be his. His, He and his wife were going to have to sell their home. They wouldn't have to go through the humiliation of explaining to all their friends why the Muskoka cabin wasn't available anymore. It came time for lunch, and so he catches the elevator back down to the concourse, and there he runs into Bill Elliott, another bank employee. This one worked at a much lower level. He manned one of the trading desks. Bill and his wife were living in a rented home. It's an investment property that Jeff had bought in order to generate income. And they'd fallen behind on their rent. They, too, had taken a major hit when the market turned. And turning to Bill, Jeff Jeff asked when he could expect that the rent would be paid. And Bill looked at him kind of helplessly and said, Jeff, you know, we've we've run into a lot of trouble. You know about the market downturn. Just 
Just give me a month or two to turn it around. We'll pay back what we owe. And without a second's hesitation, Jeff blurts out his response. There is no chance, Bill. You get me the check tonight or you're out by month's end. And sure enough, on the 30th day of the month, there was Bill and his wife and their three kids moving back in with her parents. Didn't take long for news of what happened to reach its way all the way back up to the 57th floor. Found the ears of the bank president. Mr. Surrey called Jeff back in and said, Jeff, you're a scoundrel. You know that? I mean, I went out of my way to keep you out of bankruptcy. Forgave more than I've ever forgiven before in my career. And what is it you do? You threw Bill and his family out of their house. Why? He was a little behind on his rent. And so I'm going to do the same thing. I've just instructed the credit department to put a lien on your car and your house and your Muskoka cottage. And as of now, you're fired. Get out. As much time as the disciples spent with Jesus, he still had a hard time helping them to understand what the kingdom of God was really all about. They carried with them and they weren't alone. Their entire country carried with them the expectation that when the Messiah came and set up his kingdom, it would mean political power, the return of wealth. It would mean they would rise to a position of prominence in the world that they thought they were entitled to under God's reign. Rome would be tossed out. They'd have their own currency again. They'd control their political destiny. And, and, and those who had been closest to Jesus would get seats of power and authority under the new regime. And again and again, Jesus is trying to say, you've misunderstood the real currency of the kingdom. It won't be measured in shekels or silver or gold. It's going to be measured in mercy and in grace. And to help them understand what the kingdom is like, he does... He does three things. The first thing he does is he reaches into the audience and he grabs one of the children and he puts the child on his lap and says, unless you can become like one of these little ones, you're not going to ever fully understand the kingdom of God. A child in that culture was a place of a person of little importance, had about as much value as a slave. Unless you can become last and least and little and give up your aspiration for power you will not understand what the kingdom of God is like. He follows that with a story, a parable of a loving shepherd who does the unthinkable, leaves the the flock in all of its safety in order to go out and search for the one who was lost, leaves the 99 behind because the one that was lost is of such eminent value that they would not see that one perish. Strange economics, the economics of God's kingdom. But the real trigger to this parable Matthew 18 that we're looking at is the question of Peter. You see it there in verse 21. Peter's question, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now, this is an honest question, and it's a good one. And his suggested answer is a bold one. Up to seven times? I'm sure in Peter's mind, he thought he was being extremely generous, even in our culture, right? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Uh, the implicit understanding being that if you do it a third time, we're done. Even our legal system operates on the basis of a three-strikes principle. 
So forgiveness offered to the seventh degree would be a generous offer then, and it is a generous offer still today. Rather than giving a direct answer, Jesus tells a story. The story begins with this man who's unable to show any gratitude whatsoever for the king's forgiveness. And eventually his absolutely blockheaded insensitivity just robs him of the blessing that is there for him. And his stupidity is what causes his own downfall. The amounts in the story are staggering. And this is also typical of the parables. Pay close attention to the numbers in all of the parables. Because there's usually something shocking there. It's beyond reason. And that's what Jesus intends. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration. Preachers have been known to exaggerate. right? And, And he uses it with intent here. The servant would have owed the king some $9 billion in today's currency, 10,000 bags of gold. In effect, Jesus is saying, Peter, you want to know how much to forgive? Let me remind you of how much you've been forgiven. It's beyond your imagination. The least you can do is offer forgiveness in return worth a few shekels. I imagine that that message was not just provocative, but astounding in that culture. But I wonder if it's any easier for ours. I mean, we tend to play with this idea, inside the church and outside of it, that, that getting into the pearly gates is somehow about balancing our good against our bad. Not altogether unlike the the notion of karma that's a part of of many Eastern philosophies. And we assume that if we do enough good in life, we'll have a positive balance in heaven's ledger. And then when we meet meet St. Peter there up at the gates, he'll add up the plus column and he'll add up the minus column. And if one is longer, we're in. If one is shorter, we're out. And, And what this mistaken view does, well, it does a whole bunch of things, but One of the things it absolutely does is it can make our failures feel like they're nothing more than minor errors in judgment. And of course, we know that for the really bad guys out there, the genocidal murderers, the the child molesters, there's no chance that they'll ever see the light of heaven because their minus column would be far too long to ever, ever be outweighed by anything to be put in the plus column. And so we do our own math. One of the key questions of the parable, one of the ones that forces us to a a kind of personal reckoning, is the question of what it really means to be indebted to God. What is it that we owe that's so massive that we have no hope to pay it back? Nine billion dollars. We can't. Which seems to be Jesus' point. And he leaves us to conclude that we who have been forgiven of such an astronomical debt ought to forgive freely and generously those who owe us comparatively less. Most of us are guilty of trivializing sin. We see our sins as nothing more, nothing more than just errors in judgment, character flaws, I am what my parents made me. I just, I'm living the life that they taught me. It's in the DNA. And we excuse our little sins as being of small consequence. Nobody was hurt after all. 
And we end up never really understanding the enormous debt that we've accumulated, a debt we cannot repay. And the other thing that's happened in our world is we have been duped into believing that evil is a fiction that belongs in medieval religion and science fiction movies. That there is no such thing. Or if there is, and surely there must be, even a casual examination of newspaper headlines on any given day would suggest that there is. But even if there is, it's something that's out there. And it's reserved for the worst and the lowest and the most atrocious of events. And as for us, well, we don't kill others. We don't fool around on our spouses. We don't beat our children or cheat on our taxes, do we? And so we give ourselves a pass. Evil's out there. It can't be in here. The Bible says, and this is, well, this is hard medicine, that we are every bit as guilty before God with our little sins as those who do the really big stuff. And here's why. When we stand before God, holy, majestic, Beautiful, perfect. When we stand before God, we won't be measured by the size of our sins. We'll be measured by whether or not the debt has been paid. This parable is really the story of Jesus. He's the king who paid. Not just part of, but all of the $9 billion debt. And how is it done? I mean, imagine you're going to the bank there. Your house is in foreclosure. Everything that you own is about to be repossessed because of a bankruptcy. You cannot pay. And to your surprise, the bank manager walks out and places his arm around your shoulder and says, Hey, relax. Your debt no longer exists. That's what Jesus does. The enormous debt that we've piled up because of sin and our sinful nature cleared off the books never to return again. This is a strange accounting system by any standard. The oddest of all possible accounting is that that happens in the kingdom. But, but listen to how Scripture describes it. First John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just, and He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. However, Suppose you walk out of the bank after the managers just placed their arm around your shoulder and said, your debts, they've been wiped out. And you met somebody who lent you $20 last week. I can't imagine that after having just been forgiven an enormous debt, that you or I would grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, hey, you deadbeat, pay up and pay up now. But what I hope that we would do is take them out for coffee and say, hey, how are you? And what did you need the 24? Are things okay in your life? And hey, Don't worry about paying it back. You know what we should do on the money side, but what about on the deeper side? The issues around forgiveness that plague our lives. What do we do with those people and those situations in our lives that we carry forward and cannot forgive? We spend our mornings in worship, Sunday mornings. We give thanks to God whose willingness to forgive us of what we've done and our attitudes and thoughts and behaviors are all in line with His character and, and His plan. But then we walk out of here and we hold on to stuff in our lives 
And we wonder about the ending of the parable that sounds so harsh about imprisonment and torture. But you're already living that way. In a prison of your own design, trapped by bitterness and resentment, tortured by those things that you cannot let go. Like many of the parables, it's not just predictive. This is what will happen. It's descriptive. It's just true. People who are unable to forgive live lives imprisoned and tortured by the consequences of their unforgiveness. It's just true. Very early in the history of, of God's people, you remember that year we went through the Bible in its totality, but we started very early on with this, this language, this, uh, this concept that was key to the relationship that God's people had with their Lord. It was the language of covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this is what it's going to look like. These are all the things that I have for you. But covenant was reciprocal. You, on your side, will endeavor to be and do these things. Jesus comes to the world. His death, his resurrection, all of that. The road to forgiveness, that unbelievable cancellation of debts. We ask him to forgive and he does. We ask again tomorrow, this morning and he will. We ask tomorrow and he will again. But it doesn't end there. There's this covenant and implicit in the covenant is that we will live out what we've received. Let me read you just a couple of lines from a letter that circulated in the life of the early church. It's actually recorded in Scripture. It's in 1 John, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. John's writing to his fellow brothers and sisters, and he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the debt cancellation. But read on. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In few places is that as powerfully evident as it is in the ability to offer forgiveness. What keeps us from doing it? I mean, what is it that holds us back from forgiving other people? We get trapped in our own small worlds. We believe we're the only ones being treated unfairly. Welfare recipients are angry because they don't get enough money. Executives of resource companies are upset because they don't have easier access to all the natural resources that are out there. Union worker Jimmy Hoffa was once asked about his union and what they wanted, and famously he replied, More. Why is forgiveness so essential to living in the kingdom of God? What is there in forgiving that is just so liberating? I mean, on the one hand, forgiveness 
it forces me to wrestle with this idea that the other person may not, in fact, be aware of the offense. Not everything that happens in your life and mine that's bad was done with malice or intent. Even Jesus realized this. You remember as he was being crucified, one of the very last things he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness, it's accepting the fact that not everything that happens happens with malice. But one of the other things it does, one of the beautiful things that it does, is it releases us to receive God's good gifts by forgiving others. We're denying evil a stronghold in our lives. Unforgiveness, again, is a prison cell of our own making. And to be clear, forgiving something doesn't mean that suddenly you thought it was all right. That it was just when it was profoundly unjust. Forgiveness means I'm letting go of my desire for retribution, for payback, because it's eating me up inside. When we forgive other people as God forgives, it keeps our hearts in tight relationship to God. We don't forgive just so he'll forgive us. It's not a cosmic vending machine we're putting in our forgiveness coins and and getting his back. But in forgiving, we're replicating what God has done in our lives. And then the wealth and the riches of of the kingdom, the the design for humanity, it all gets released. I love stories. You probably know that about me by now. Let me end with one last one. This is a story from the East. And like so many stories from the East, they're largely unfamiliar to me, so I particularly love these ones. This is one that uh, was passed on to me by Brian Stiller. Imagine a peasant walking along the road one day, and he comes across a billboard displaying an invitation to all the citizens of the kingdom to come to the king's palace, to the courtyards for a great feast. And the peasant reacts surprisingly with bitterness. How dare the king invite us all, he says. He must know that many of us would not possibly come in the rags that we wear. If anything, it will just magnify the difference between what he has and who we are. The more he thinks about it, the angrier he gets. And finally, he walks to the palace, he pounds on the gates, demanding to see the king. The guard pushes him away. Day after day, he returns again, requesting an audience. And finally, the king hears about this this peasant and this strange request, and he instructs the guard, the next time he comes, let him in. And then that day comes, and to the peasant's surprise, the gate opens, and he's escorted right into the king's throne room. And all of a sudden, he isn't quite so bold. The king looks up from his table and sees the peasant and says, My subject, give me your request. The peasant rises, no longer feeling courage. Is it true, he stammers? Is it true that we're all invited to the palace for a feast? Of course it is, the king replies. Then the peasant looks down at his clothes, the tatters, the rags, and wonders how he could tell the king of his embarrassment. The king is a kind sort, and he's generally perceptive, and And once he realizes the peasant's plight, he calls for his son. The son takes him into one of the court apartments, opens a panel, shows him this beautiful array of robes. Help yourself, he says. The peasant being just self-conscious is frozen. He can't move. And so the prince picks out a magnificent 
purple velvet cloak embroidered in gold. Try it on, he says. He places it on his shoulders. The peasant drops his rags and puts on the garment, never feeling such luxury in his whole life. But then embarrassed, he, he reaches down and he scoops up the rags again and, and clutching them in his hands and muttering a few words of thanks, he slips quietly away. When the day of celebration comes, the king has a great time watching his citizens gather and enjoy the feast. And you notice the peasant, he's there too, looking regal in his purple robes. Food is being passed down the tables and music is being played. And he looks again and finds the peasant. And, uh, but then he notices and with some despair uh, that he's not eating. And eventually he realizes the problem. The problem is this. The peasant is holding in one hand a bag containing all the tattered rags that he'd worn his whole life. And because he would not let it go, he had one hand only to pass the plate as it was being, being uh, tossed down the rows and no hand to serve himself. And so the entire feast passes and he doesn't eat. Weeks later, the king hears that his peasant friend is dying. He goes to his small hut and stoops through the low door and finds him there lying on a bamboo mat, still dressed in that regal-looking purple robe, but a lot dirtier and a little torn. He lifts the peasant, just skin and bones, but still clutching in one hand a bag of rags. And the story concludes with the king speaking softly, My dear friend, if only you'd let go of your rags, all the food on my table was yours. And I hold on to an unforgiving spirit. I'm the one who's shortchanged. He dropped the rags of unforgiveness and then watch as everything changes. Can I encourage you to do that this week? In fact, can I challenge you to go out of your way this week to find that person or address that situation that you know has been lingering in your life? Do so gently if necessary. Do so intentionally. Do so carefully. But do it this week. If you're feeling really courageous, drop me a note and tell me what happened. It's the key to escaping a prison of your own making bitterness and resentment, and it's the way to access the full bounty of the king's table. In fact, we're about to meet there together. Before we do that, let me pray for you. God, this is a hard word. As hard as it might be to understand, it's harder still to apply. We've been holding on to things in our lives, Lord. We've been holding them tight. And they've got us twisted up, and we want to let them go. And if that describes you this morning, I, I pray that God will give you the conviction followed by the courage to do what needs to be done. I pray, God, that it would settle any sort of spirit in your life of animosity that would prevent it from happening. And to be clear, Justice is a big part of your heart, Lord. 
And our desire to forgive doesn't mean we need to pretend what is unjust has suddenly been just. We want to be people of grace. We want to extend mercy and forgiveness. As we come now to your table, we want to live and behave as people who know and who cherish divine grace upon grace comes washing into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.